With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. How PETA became internationally recognized overnight. I'm Samuel Donner. This podcast is Finding Founders, and you are listening to our mini-series, Founder Wisdom, where we explore one story in depth from our founders and take a lesson away from it. I talked to Ingrid Newkirk about PETA and the story behind how she founded it. Here's Ingrid. I'm Ingrid Newkirk. I'm the founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and we've been in business now for 41 years. So you founded PETA in March of 1980 uh, with Alex Pacheco, but it wasn't until 1981 where you guys kind of became this internationally recognized movement with the Silver Springs monkey case. So where where was your organization in the beginning of 1981? Well, the year before, there had really been no animal rights organizations. The word vegan was unheard of. We formed our little group, and it really was a little tiny group, because I had managed to see so many cruelties as a law enforcement officer actually inspecting laboratories, going into pet shops behind the scenes. I've learned so much and I always thought I was kind to animals. There are all these other people who must feel the same way as I do. I need to show them what's going on in places they don't visit and then give them alternatives to patronizing cruel things. And we had actually managed to close down on the grounds of health the last remaining chicken slaughterhouse in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. But that's where we were when we went inside the Silver Spring Monkeys Laboratory in 1981. Okay, so how did you first hear about the Institute of Behavioral Research in Silver Spring, Maryland? Department of Agriculture puts out a list every year of laboratories that have a license. So I got the list and I looked down it to see which was the nearest laboratory to where I lived. We found out it was a makeshift laboratory in a big warehouse area, just maybe two miles from where I lived. But the person I founded the group with had never been in a laboratory. He had been out on the Sea Shepherd stopping illegal whaling vessels. I looked down the list and thought, well, this is the nearest one to us. Off you go. Um, see if you can go inside and have a look. Wait, go inside? How, how do you get inside one of these places? He knocked at the door. He asked if they had any job openings. And they said, no, they didn't have any. But would he like to volunteer? And so he said, yes, he'd volunteer. And in he went. What did he see? What he found was, and you could smell it before you could see it, in the back of that warehouse, the stench was unbearable. And there were 17 macaque monkeys, each one kept individually in a very small metal box, barely bigger than their own bodies. 
and the cages were full of fecal matter and urine that had built up because the cages hadn't been cleaned in so long. And in those cages were monkeys, macaque monkeys, who had had their spines opened up. And that was a process called deafferentation. What it did was uh, interfere with their ability to use their arms, some of them one arm and some of them two. And a lot of these animals had gangrenous wounds. They, we didn't know then, but there was a garbage pail that was full of the bodies of ones who had died of gangrene. Um, but others had wounds, and you could see many of them were missing fingers because they caught the fingers in the cage wires and tore them off because they had reduced feeling in their hands. After Pacheco saw this, like, what was the conversation that he had with you? He was flabbergasted, he was disgusted, he was upset. And so we sat down together and tried to figure out what to do. And that was when we decided we need to see if we can bring these people to court, if we can prosecute these people for cruelty. You probably needed evidence for that. So how did you go about gathering that evidence? Well, he was the volunteer and he was allowed to go in. He would go in at various times, usually in the evening after people had left. He would take a camera and he would go through into the lab and take photographs of the appalling conditions. And I would sit in the car in the back parking lot inside a cardboard box. The cardboard box? <laughs> yeah. I, there was a cardboard box on the back seat and I would sit inside it and look through a slit in it. So with my Radio Shack walkie-talkie, <laughs> if it worked, I could alert him if anybody was coming in. It worked out. What happened, of course, is after he took the pictures, we didn't go directly to the police. We went to experts, primatologists, veterinarians, psychologists, showed them the photographs and said, would you testify that this is not acceptable under the cruelty law? And most of them said, well, we'd like to see it ourselves. And what was their reaction? Well, they were so disgusted and they all, uh, to a person, agreed to testify if we got a trial. And we did get a trial. There were lots of twists and turns along the way, but we did manage to prosecute the experimenter who didn't have any medical training whatsoever, even though he was conducting these surgeries, and take him to court and charge him with cruelty to animals. And they all came and testified against him. And in that way, it was successful in that he was convicted. Edward Taub, the experimenter, was convicted of cruelty to animals in the state of Maryland. That was a first. Up until today, like, what are some of your proudest accomplishments concerning what you've done and what the organization has done? Well, I think that cruelty to animals is so enormous, it, 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 it encompasses so many different forms that you're never going to really finish it all. You're never going to be totally satisfied. But we were extremely pleased to stop all the car crash tests on animals in the whole world. They used to take baboons and pigs 
and put them into a device and slam them into a wall to test steering wheels and so on. We escalated that campaign. It took many, many months. And finally, we got every car company in the world to switch to these, you know, computerized mannequins, which, of course, is far superior. And we have closed other labs since then. Um, there's a lot to be done with experimentation. Bad things, terrible things still happen to animals. But I like the idea that vegan is now a household word. And it's cool to be vegan. And kids want to be vegan. Also, I think we've pretty much revolutionized the clothing industry. Because when we started, it was every girl's dream to grow up to have a fur coat. I mean, it really was. And it was a status symbol. And now, you know, most people wouldn't be seen dead in fur. Last year was our anniversary, our 40th anniversary, and I thought, why not come out with a book that reflects how things have changed over the 40 years? Because I think people are so receptive now to finding out about animals, and they have come a long way in those 40 years. So I put the book together to be in two parts, the first part being, here's who animals are. And the second part of the book to allow people to see the many ways in which they can stop even inadvertently harming animals through their buying habits. And for our one takeaway from this story, I'd actually like to pass it back to Ingrid because I think she has a great summary of the meaning of all this. Everybody has the power of the purse. And everybody can make an enormous difference in increasing the kindness in the world, even to those who perhaps we are least familiar with. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Learn how to be as kind as you can be to animals, to everyone.